The future of opera is a hotly debated topic, but if the composers discussed in today's podcast episode are any indication, that future looks pretty bright. On this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we learn more about opera in the new millennium. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. From Pulitzer Prize winner Du Yun, to musical mainstay Nico Muli, to Broadway superstar Janine Tesori, composers are changing the perception of what an opera can be. I'm your host, Stuart Holt, and in today's episode, lecturers Naomi Baratera and Elspeth Davis continue the second part of a two-part series from our archives on contemporary composers and operas that are changing the music scene. We're going to start with one of our compositional wunderkinds of the time, and that is Nico Muley. So how many of you have seen Marnie at the Met already? Oh, good. Wonderful. <laughs> so Nico Muley was born in Vermont in 1981. He sang when he was very young in a lot of Episcopal choirs, in kind of church choirs and sacred music, and this had a huge impact on him. He ended up going to Columbia University, and he did an undergraduate degree in English, not in music. Uh, but while he was there, he was very much exploring musical life in New York City. And then he ended up going to Juilliard, doing a master's in music, so just right next door. And he studied with John Corleano and Christopher Rouse. And while he was at Columbia, he actually started working as a part-time job for Philip Glass. And he was working as an arranger and kind of an assistant for Philip Glass. And this definitely had a huge impact on him. And Glass became a mentor of sorts for him. And so when he was quite young, he started making kind of waves in classical music. And interestingly, because of the things that I think uh, people noticed about him really early on. And the first one was that he was incredibly prolific. This guy was just like turning out works like crazy. He was like a compositional machine. And so that was something where he was just composing, composing, composing all the time and getting works performed, which is a difficult thing to do when you're a young composer. And the second thing is that he was incredibly diverse in the kinds of music and the kinds of projects that he took on and that he worked on. And so he's worked on so many different types of things. And at the time when he was doing this, especially like in the early 2000s, people thought this was really groundbreaking because they said, well, here you have a composer who, you know, he writes these very traditional symphonies or borderline atonal music or minimalist style, style music inspired by Philip Glass. And then you turn around and he's collaborating with Bjork or with these big pop stars in different, 
uh, indie rock groups and things like that. And then the next minute, he's helping orchestrate a film score. And so he was just dabbling in all of these different things. And people thought that this was quite revolutionary, that he moved back and forth between popular music and classical music so freely and with kind of wild abandon. And so there's actually a tweet that he's very famous for putting out there where he said, whenever mad young composers are like, give me advice, I always want to say, watch Jiro Dreams of Sushi, and then do that, but music. <laughs> and so look on Netflix, there's this, there's this documentary called Jiro Dreams of Sushi, and it's about the Michelin star sushi chef in Japan. And it's all about his incredible dedication to his craft. And if you look down at the bottom, Nico kind of replies to a thread where he says, maybe like do that, but also be nice to your kids. Because <laughs> in the documentary, I think Jiro was not uh, incredibly nice to his son who was his uh, sous chef in the restaurant that they run. But so this idea of being incredibly prolific and doing a bunch of stuff and doing it in all of these different genres. So I have three short clips to kind of show you back to back some of these wildly different things that he's written. So the first is, we'll listen to about 30 seconds of Mother Tongue, and this is written for classical music or art music performance. repetitive cell blocks, repetitive little things, but they're layered in a kind of chaotic fashion. So if you were to take one layer out of the hole, think of like a layer cake, right? If you take one layer out of the hole and just taste that layer, it would have a very distinct flavor or a distinct thing that it is. But then once you layer these things all together and stack them up, it can create chaos or the sound of chaos or controlled chaos. And that's something that we hear a lot of in Nico Muley's music. In Marnie, you're going to hear a lot of that as well. The next example is from his album uh, that he did with Sufjan Stevens called Planetarium. This is the song Mercury. And in this clip, Nicole Muley's playing the piano. So you get to see him actually involved in the performance of what he helped compose.
you can hear a kind of kinship between the two with this idea of repetitive patterns, even though they sound completely different, right? And then the third example is from his most recent film score, I believe was released this year, for Howard's End. And so Nico did do the score for The Reader uh, several years ago, but this is his next film score. So this is a little bit of his film composing. creating some kind of, I describe it as like a foundation or a pillow of kind of constant layers and, re and repetitive patterns underneath and then having much more like melodic um, vocal tracks or solo violin in this case kind of floating around on top like they have some kind of pillow to dance on almost is the idea. And so how many of you saw Two Boys when it was here at the Met? All right. So Two Boys was his big opera, his first big Met commission. And it was first at the ENO in 2011, then it came to the Met in 2013. And in that, people talked a lot about the incredible choral numbers in it because Nico is so strongly influenced by church music and he really likes Renaissance composers and that sort of thing. And so in Two Boys and in Marnie, you'll hear... Uh, there's a great moment in Marnie where his love of church music is actually very present and very noticeable. And so I found this great video where Nico Muley is sitting at the piano and he's actually talking about some of his approaches to the composition of Marnie. So little interesting things he was trying to integrate into the score. So the first half of this video is him talking about some of the ideas and approaches to composing the work. And then the second half of it is a bit of the aria from Act Two, Florio's aria sung by Isabel Leonard. So he's going to talk about some of the things he was trying to do, and then you're going to hear the final result. So here is Nico Muley talking about Marnie. One of the big pieces of architecture um, that happens in the story and in the libretto and, and I hope in the music is that you know, this is a woman who exists in fragments and she has all these different identities that, that are not just cosmetic, right? She herself has to play a part in each one. And she, all, the, all the intervals that she sings are like kind of scattered around and, and you know, difficult to learn, you know. They, they make sense harmonically, but it's, it's, all, it's all very jagged, right? And if you, if you drew the line, it would look kind of like and then at the end, when she has this revelation that it was mom's fault all along, um, the, the way that I dealt with that was by completely divorcing her from that, that kind of intervallic content. So, um, you know, at the ends, her just lines are almost more, more traditional. And my, the pathway towards that was that when she realizes that it was her mother's fault, 
all of her kind of gnarly music that kind of does that is answered in exact negative um, by the hymn uh, Praise Missile, the King of Heaven, whose refrain goes uh, in my harmonization. So it's just scales. And that, that then we do that, opened up this, it's basically that. Um, which sounds sort of like a cheap ending, but it, I, th I, think it, I think it works. In the, in the two previous operas I'd written, um, there were very few sort of traditional arias that are, that are standalone. And that, I think, was frustrating um, to me in a weird way, but it was also how I, how I felt that the, the drama of those pieces needed to work. So in this particular case, I, I did have a, a few moments and where, where Nick and I agreed that there could be a, a, a moment, not of her being aggressive and, and, and moving through us like a shark, but where she actually has a moment of repose. And there's only one of them really, which is when she's talking about her horse, which is sort of the whole point. And I, we, we stuck it right before the fox hunt, which is the most terrifying you know, thing compositionally and also visually, and right after this, this um, garden party gone wrong. So the garden party gone, gone wrong starts very pleasant, and, and the chorus is almost, you know, just, it, it sound, it's incredibly old-fashioned, everyone's in ball guns, and then it ends with, this enormous fight between the two brothers and people coming in and, and there's this random aria from the mother and it's, it's all kind of chaos. And then out of that, the kind of dust clears and we have things happen and projection happens. And then we're in this totally neutral And it's, it's a sense like the palate is cleansed and she sings about how much she, she loves her horse. In the middle of that, we have a sense of clouds coming over it. She, again, these big registral extremes. These, where she's saying, I know he'll never hurt me. I'll know he'll never disappoint me. Big descending things. And that they're meant to give her, her a certain power there, right? Where she says, I am in control of this situation. Oh, <laughs> 
hand things over to Elspeth, and we're going to talk next about Mrs. Du Yun. Uh, she was born in 1977, born and raised in Shanghai. She lives uh, primarily in New York now. Um, she also is based in Baltimore. She just recently got on the faculty of the Peabody Institute. Um, she got her PhD in music from Harvard, and I think of all the composers we're going to talk about today, Du Yung is the one that I would call the least traditional. Like Nico Muli, she's interested in um, not even so much jumping genres as the idea of genres not existing at all. Uh, she calls herself an intuitive composer. Um, and she's always interested in blurring the boundaries between mediums. Uh, she's released a pop album of her own. Um, if you like electronica music, I highly recommend you check it out. If you don't, maybe you shouldn't. That's fine. Um, and she's also been commissioned by American or orchestras such as the Detroit and the Seattle symphonies. Um, all of her pieces, I would say, sound radically different. She's more interested in creating the what she feels is the appropriate emotion for the piece and less about a specific style. Her works have been called cutting edge, but she feels that the intelligence of classical music audiences should not be underestimated. One thing she likes to talk about is the idea of discomfort. She feels that she really enjoys being challenged when she writes music. She actually is a pianist. She studied piano from the age of four. But she has gone on record saying that when she writes music, she does not sit down at the piano. You notice Nico was always yes. at the piano. She does not sit down at the piano. She never checks the music, checks the pitches or anything, because she wants that feeling of discomfort and being challenged when she writes. Um, so why? why are we talking about her? Well, last year, uh, she won the Pulitzer Prize for music for her opera, Angel's Bone. The libretto was by Royce Vavrick, who, if you know anything about contemporary opera, basically is the librettist for everybody and everything. <laughs> uh, the Pulitzer jury described the piece as a bold work that integrates vocal and instrumental elements in a wide range of styles into a harrowing allegory for human trafficking in the modern world. So this opera <clears throat> obviously is a pretty heavy uh, subject matter. Uh, it tells the story of a white middle-class couple, Mr. and Mrs. Xe. Um, who walk into their backyard one day and they find two angels have fallen from heaven. Um, and basically they um, take their wings and they capture them and they enslave them and use them for emotional and uh, physical abuse. Um, and it ends with uh, the husband feeling guilty enough that he kills himself and the angels get released. Uh, the woman basically sells her story to the tabloids and says it was her husband's fault, and that's how she gains notoriety and fame. However, if you ever see this opera, I don't know if you're ever going to get any of that. It is very, very broad <laughs> in its storytelling. Um, du Young has said, when we look at human trafficking, we always think that it's far away from us. We all have our own narrative of what human trafficking is supposed to be, but if you do a little research, human trafficking happens in many different forms and shapes right in our backyard. And we actually, the amazing thing about talking about 21st century opera is that we have all of these interviews with the people that have written this music. And so we have a brief little interview with Du Young and uh, Royce where they're talking about Angel's Bones. So we're going to take a look at that right now. Yeah. 
Angel's Bone is about a couple of, in middle America who find a pair of angels in their garden and they nurse them back to health and then prune the feathers from their wings and use them as currency to enslave them. trafficking, we're thinking about stories and incidents that happen far away from our usual life, but in fact it is both close and far away. I wanted to provide a platform at least for us to talk about it. I think that Du Yun's music is so singular and so vital and, and full of life and um, and just the sounds of what it means to be a, a person living in a contemporary world. We have a cast of four remarkable singers, and they come from different genres. We have three operatic or more classical voices and one uh, punk. Uh, voice, so it gives you this interesting tapestry of different qualities of, of vocalization and, and performance. In this piece, the audience were actually ex experiencing lots of styles of, of music, but for me, it's actually less about the style mission, it's about what kind of music that the story calls for. So again, what she is interested in is creating what she thinks are the appropriate sounds to tell the story. Um, she weaves together a lot of different styles in this opera. She says that it's a lot of music that matters to me dearly, from Renaissance to chant to meticulously notated modern music to screaming songs that she likes to sing herself. Unfortunately, we didn't get a copy of the score in time to show you guys what this looks like, but the rehearsal process from Angel's Bone was very interesting. Um, because it was something where De Jong had to be there the entire time, kind of to describe it. If you're looking at a sheet of music, so you've got the musical staves right here, and basically what it looked like is that somebody took a pen and scribbled all over it in different ways to semi-notate where pitches and rhythms were. And so it was a long process, and this opera has been performed a lot, and this opera has only been performed with the original cast, because I just think that it's impossible to take the time to rehearse it uh, with anybody else. Uh, Du Young and Royce are actually in Hong Kong right now, premiering this opera, I think, tonight, so unfortunately couldn't be with us. But it is with that original cast, and they're doing it LA, in LA next year, again, with the original cast. And so I just think Du Young's really fascinating me because she's so uninterested in the idea of, um, I guess, isms, for lack. Yes. <laughs> of a better word. What she feels is most important is taking a look at the content, the story she wants to tell, and then using any kind of musical language to uh, help describe that. So this was premiered in 2006 with the Prototype Festival, which happens in January every year. If you're interested in learning more about what's new in contemporary opera, I recommend going to everything at the Prototype Festival. They're usually pretty much on the pulse point of what's going on. And we have another video this is a trailer, it's about three or four minutes, that shows you a bunch of different scenes from Angel's Bone. 
there is one scene that's a tiny bit graphic, so if you don't like blood, I would recommend just averting your eyes, but it is very short, so.
that's a brief little overview of a Ji Young and Angel's Bone. You're probably going to be seeing a lot more of her, and I think it's going to be really exciting as to what she comes up with next to, uh, to challenge the audience and everybody. So we're going to talk about someone slightly more traditional now. Yeah? Yes, a okay. little bit more traditional. We are very excited to introduce you to Laura Kaminsky. First, we're going to be able to introduce you today to her music and a little bit about her from a lecturing standpoint, but if you are coming back this afternoon, she's going to be with us live and in person mm -hmm. for our panel, so we are very excited to be able to talk about her today. So Laura Kaminsky actually went to <laughs> high school at uh, the Fiorello LaGuardia High School for Music and Art, and she then went on to Oberlin College. She got her master's degree from City College here at the City University of New York, and she then went on to be a, a Tush Foundation fellow, and she now actually teaches at SUNY Purchase in addition to her composing and all kinds of other things that she does. And so she has been recognized over and over and over again through an incredibly astonishing list of awards and fellowships and grants for all of her amazing work with contemporary music, with contemporary musicians and new projects. Uh, she, for several years, worked at New York City's 92nd Street Y. She worked at Town Hall. She worked at Symphony Space. She was actually the artistic director there from 2010 to 2014. She worked for several years at the European Mozart Academy, and she co-founded and remains the artistic director of the new music collected called Musicians Accord, which is a residency at the City College of New York, where ensemble members work with uh, graduate students in composition. So she is very dedicated to nurturing new music in whatever way she possibly can. And so if you look up her bio this afternoon, if you look at her profile on her webpage or Wikipedia, you'll see this um, wonderful array of things that she's been nominated for. She's also been nominated for the Pulitzer Prize, but has never won to my knowledge. So quite a recognized composer. And she has composed in all genres, really, opera, orchestral works, string quartets, all classical music genres, I should say, <laughs> string quartets, chamber music, which are works for small groups of uh, instruments, uh, solo works, piano works, and a variety of other things. And I think what is so striking about Laura's music and also about Laura herself when you hear her speak is that she is very invested in social and political themes and always trying to create respect for the different stories that she is telling and also highlight connections to uh, so the social world and also the natural world. And so when you're reading about her works, if you're looking for how people describe her music, some of the words and descriptions I found were luminous textures, understated sensuality, intimate sonic pictures, concentrated emotion, and an atonal Amy Beach, which I think is an interesting one. And so another description that I really liked was from the American Record Guide, where they said, Kaminsky's music is full of fire as well as ice, written in an idiom that contrasts dissonance and violence with tonal beauty and meditative reflection. It is strong stuff. So this is one of the ideas I was talking about that composers today can draw from all kinds of things from the past and they don't have to limit themselves to just an atonal sound or just a tonal sound or just a meditative sound. They can kind of bring all of these things together. So to introduce you to some of her music, 
that is non-operatic to start with. She is working or recently worked on this project called the Crossroads Project, which really was to inspire audiences to change course in terms of how we were treating the earth itself. And so it was a large collaborative project with the string quartet, and they put out an album, and it was supposed to be pieces that are reflective of what is happening in the environment today and, and raise awareness about global warming. And so about these uh, works, one of the works in this project was called Rising Tides, and, or Rising Tide, and the Washington Post described it as, the four movements of rising tide track the planet's, planet's basic resources, water, the biosphere, food, and human society in a carefully constructed or structured idiom that makes the most of textures sometimes delicate and almost weightless, sometimes thick and convoluted, but always vivid. Kaminsky manages both tension and humor in the most natural way, and her final movement conveyed a profound sense of philosophical acceptance. So I'm going to play you two bits from Rising Tide, because I think it's a really interesting work. And so the first one here is uh, Movement One of Rising Tide, and it is called H2O, The Source of Life. to show you is from movement four. This is what the review is talking about with this kind of philosophical acceptance. And this one is called Resolve. And it's actually, if you're familiar with the folk tune, The Water is Wide, you'll recognize the melody of this. But the harmonization is so interesting. It's kind of completely different from what you would expect. <laughs> and so I think this is a great example of the old and the new merging together in a, to create a new work. So this is about 30 seconds or so of resolve.
be talking about Laura Kaminsky in a class called Opera in the New Millennium. It is largely the inspiration behind researching her and looking into her for Elspeth and I came from her opera as one. So this is an opera that the music and the concept for the opera is by Laura Kaminsky, the libretto is by Mark Campbell and Kimberly Reed, and then there's also a film component of the opera that was also created by Kimberly Reed, and it was commissioned by the American Opera Project. The world premiere was in September 2014, and it was also in association with the Brooklyn Academy of Music, BAM, and with a cast of essentially two voices. So it's a chamber opera, is how it's described, in, in which two voices, Hannah after, sung by a mezzo-soprano, and Hannah before, sung by a baritone, share the part of a sole transgender protagonist. Fifteen songs comprise the three-part narrative. With empathy and humor, the work traces Hannah's experiences from her youth in a small town into her college years, and finally traveling alone to a different country where she realizes some truths about herself. So the opera as a whole is a story about identity and authenticity and compassion. It's 75 minutes long, and it was designed to depict the experiences of a sole transgender protagonist. And so a, a person struggling to resolve and endeavoring to dis resolve the discord that they feel within themselves, between themselves and the outside world. And so the creative team for this, I think, was really a magical coming together of three brilliant minds and three very inspired minds. And the opera itself is actually uh, heralded as one of the greatest contemporary operas ever written. And so the Denver Post described it as, as one is the hottest title in opera right now, at least among the titles written in the last 100 years. Uh, in a lot of the press photos about it, you can see these two singers, and I think it's really amazing how she wrote this opera in terms of the vocal line, because you have a mezzo-soprano and a baritone who are depicting the same person, and sometimes they sing separately or alone, and sometimes they sing together. And in an interview with Laura, she actually described how when you look at the mezzo-soprano range and the baritone range, there's actually only like four or five or six pitches that overlap between those two voice types where they can actually sing the same pitch. And so she said that was part of the challenge of writing it was finding ways to make these two voices sound beautiful together and sound as if they are as one and <coughs> weave in and out of each other in different ways. And so there's a lot that's been written about this because it's been so widely produced and so widely acclaimed. And so one example describing some of the music, the most poignant moments of As One are when these voices meet, the low and the high, the masculine and the feminine, trying to relate and find peace with one another. The device clearly and effortlessly reveals the duality of someone grappling with gender identity, a concept difficult to represent in a theatrical or cinematic setting. So sometimes when I encounter new operas, I think to myself, why did you choose opera to tell this story? And I think in this particular work, it's obvious why opera was chosen, because it was the perfect medium to actually convey the story that they wanted to tell, because you had voice in addition to text and visual and stage work. 
Another description of the music said, it's easy to see why As One is so successful. The music is modern, but not thorny or intimidating. It pairs perfectly with the words, and together they carry, through you, carry you through the story. You don't have to work to enjoy it, which I think is really interesting. One more review said, much of the success of As One is due to Kaminsky's consistently compelling music. The vocal lines for both Hannah's are skillfully crafted, often sung together with Hannah after solo soaring into Tessitura Heights. So we're going to watch a little bit of this and then I'll talk about some of the other works that she has done. But before we watch, I will just say that I've never met Laura Kaminsky in person until today. Um, but I have seen her speak at the Opera America conference and I have listened to interviews with her. And I think part of, at least for me, what I felt when I was researching this work, part of what was so amazing was that Laura Kaminsky is just one of the most genuinely good human beings that you will ever come into contact with. And she just is so, so intentional, intentional about wanting to do good in the world and spread good in the world through her work. And I think that that comes out in her music, and that's partially why her works are so successful, because her in, what she wants to achieve and what she hopes to achieve are simply to spread joy and good things and raise awareness about perspectives that are sometimes ignored or drowned out. And so I think that her opera really resonates with a lot of people because of that. So this scene that we're going to watch is actually Mark Campbell's favorite scene from the opera. And this is called To Know is the scene. And it actually happens in a library where Hannah, for the first time, actually finds a word to describe how she, how she feels about herself. And then she has this feeling that she is not alone anymore in how she feels. And so this is his favorite scene. And it will give you a good sense of how the singers interact with each other. Travel, 
write other operas. She, some of her other works include Some Light Emerges. Uh, she's currently working on a work called Today It Rains. And also she has another commission that's coming to San Francisco in 2020 uh, called Postville. And so she has continued to write opera since 2014. But this work is important because it is the most often produced new opera ever to be written. So I think it's had over 12 new productions mounted of it since it was performed. And also Opera America reported that Laura Kaminsky, Mark Campbell, and Kimberly Reed's Chamber Opera was the 14th most performed opera in the United States and Canada in the 2016-17 season and the only opera in the top 25 written in the country. <coughs> so it's going up against, for some of these statistics, the bohems and the butterflies of opera, and it's still ranked 14th most performed. So it has obviously struck a chord today and has made its mark. For now, we're going to move on to... All right, I'm, this is Christopher Cerrone, who also will be joining us this afternoon. He was born in 1984 in Long Island. He tells a story, his parents were both in advertising, so he decided to become a composer as the ultimate rebellion against his family. Um, he had this idea that writing music in a garret somewhere was the most romantic thing that he had ever heard. Um, he doesn't live in a garret, he lives in Brooklyn, he's fine. Uh, <laughs> he went to MSM for undergrad and he got his uh, graduate degree at Yale. Um, I think that 
Chris's music is instantly recognizable when you hear it. It has an extremely ethereal quality to it. He likes playing in very high tessitoras for all instrumentation, including uh, singers. Um, and what he is most interested in is clarity, whether that's clarity in text, clarity in tonality. That, to Chris, is the most important thing. There actually is an album coming out by New, um, New Amsterdam Records in August of next year, uh, conducted by Chris Roundtree and with the chamber ensemble Wild Up, which is based in L.A., which is an all-Sarone album. And we actually have a clip from one of the unreleased tracks. This is called The Pieces That Fall to Earth. This is uh, Wild Up and the soprano Lindsay Kesselman.
like to describe Chris's music as the kind of music that makes you want to lean in when you're listening to it. It sort of draws the, uh, the audience in. And um, the little bit that we heard of the, the vocal writing in this piece in particular, she's not really functioning as much as a soloist as a member of the ensemble, which is something that Chris is very interested in. He's written a number of operas. He's workshopping one right now called In a Grove that has a workshop performance at the Morgan Library in March. If you're interested, you should check that out. Um, but we are going to talk today about his opera Invisible Cities, which was written in 2013. I see some of you nodding your heads. Love it. <laughs> um, so Invisible Cities was shortlisted for the Pulitzer Prize in, uh, in 2014. I think the other people listed were John Adams and John Luther Adams. John Luther Adams won. And the thing about Invisible Cities, it's an operatic adaptation of the novel by Italo Calvino, which is um, made up conversations between Kublai Khan and Marco Polo. Um, it has no real narration. He's just describing different cities that he has visited. And one of the reasons that Invisible Cities became famous is the production in LA that was in LA's Union Station. And how it was staged was the cast of costume singers and dancers performed and moved among the crowd of commuters while audience members were wearing wireless headphones. And that piped the sound of the musicians and the singers. And so the audience was allowed to basically follow whoever they felt like, which sort of changed the story while the whole music was being um, piped in. And the music feels very timeless. It has extremely long lines, lots of gong-like resonances and drawn-out dissonances. Uh, the instrumentation is stripped down to 11 orchestra members and eight singers. And the harmonies are rich, intricate, and tightly executed by the vocalists, making the music sound more like a chamber choir than opera at points. Um, so we have two clips for you. One is a description of the production itself. We're not going to play it because there isn't time. <laughs> um, but we are going to play a clip that it's literally our favorite thing in the entire world. This is uh, the scene where Marco Polo is describing the city of Isadora. And you'll notice the dancers, and there are people. I like watching the people who are not actually there for the opera. They're there to, to get a train because they look very confused as to what's going on. Um, <clears throat> so this is Marco Polo, and this is Isadora, which is my favorite movement from Invisible Cities. And when you listen to it, there are um, these intervals that happen in the orchestra. And he actually wrote those because he was at his grandmother's house, and her piano was extremely out of tune. And he was playing it, and he was like, oh, that's interesting. So that's actually the genesis of this movement. So let's, let's watch it out.
I know a lot of composers are interested in pushing the envelope and making things difficult and new, and that shows that they're intelligent and important, but I think there's a lot to say for writing music that is beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> it's nice. And Chris um, will say that he really loves writing pretty music. He likes so, writing pretty music. Yes. Um, so in the brief time that we have left, we're going to talk about one more composer, Janine Tesori, who was born in 1961. Um, she, if you don't know her, is um, the most prolific and honored female theatrical composer in history. She has five Broadway musicals and five Tony Award nominations to her name. 
She won a Drama Desk Award for Outstanding Music in a Play for Lincoln Center's 1999 production of Twelfth Night, which I saw when I was in high school, and it was amazing. <laughs> um, and she won the Drama Desk Award for Outstanding Music for Caroline or Change, and the 2015 Tony Award for Best Original Score for Fun Home. Her major works include Fun Home, Caroline or Change, Shrek the Musical, Thoroughly Modern Millie, and Violet. And if her name doesn't immediately ring a bell to the wider world, um, the way other five-time Tony nominees, such as Alan Menken or Stephen Schwartz do, it's probably because of an artistic philosophy that tailors each show, um, each score for a show's storytelling. So things like Thoroughly Modern Millie went for a very 1920s sound. Uh, Caroline or Change blended gospel and klezmer, and Shrek, if you saw it, was sort of unabashed pop music. Tesori, um has a philosophy that she likes to render the writer invisible in a musical. She comes from a school where she tries to make people completely forget that the actors are singing. The big musical theater cults usually develop around singular geniuses like Lin-Manuel Miranda, Stephen Sondheim, or songwriting duos like Rodgers and Hammerstein or Pasek and Paul, and Tesori does not work in either of those ways. Instead, she changes partners for every show that she does. She usually teams up with a single writer who writes the lyrics and the dialogue rather than following the old standard musical theater configuration of a lyricist and what is called a book writer. Tesori uh, also tends to team up with an artist best known as a playwright, people like Tony Kushner, David Henry Juan, and often with ones that have never written musical theater before. Her advice to composers is to remain a beginner's mind and not arrogantly think to yourself, I got this. <laughs> The one collaborate, collaborator that she has returned to work with multiple times is Tony Kushner, who wrote Angels in America. The two first partnered on his semi-autobiographical musical, Carolina Change. And playwrights are Tesori's preferred partners because she says they are masters of storytelling. They don't subscribe to the forms or the rules. The negative way would be to say the formulas of musical theater. They come from a place of language and behavior and psychology as opposed to song structure. And to give an example of Tesori's different writing styles, uh, we're first going to play you a very brief clip from the original score of Twelfth Night. Um, and this is the song Come Away Death, which has been uh, written by um, many composers like Roger Quilter, uh, Ray Fawn Williams. Um, and so this is her version. This is sung by David Patrick Kelly. Um, and if anybody doesn't know who he is, um, he's playing Festy the Clown in, in Twelfth Night. Um, and I think his claim to fame, I can't believe I'm going to talk about this. Have anybody seen the movie The Warriors that came out in the 80s? So there's that really famous scene where there's that man with the bottles in his hands. You're looking at me like I'm crazy. You're Canadian, <laughs> that's why you don't know this. Um, he's clinging the bottles and he goes, Warriors, come out to play. That's David Patrick Kelly. So here is him singing Come Away Death. Come away, come away, death. And in sad cypress, let me be laid. Fire away, fire away, breath. I am slain by a fair, cruel maid. My shroud of white stuck all with you. Prepare it My part of death No one so true Did share it Not a flower Not a flower sweet 
On my black coffin Let there be strewn Not a friend Not a friend Greet my poor corpse Where my bones shall be thrown A thousand thousand sighs to say Lay me aware Sad true lover Never find my grave to weep there. So uh, that production in Twelfth Night had a very Eastern feel to it, and I think you can hear that reflected in the music. There was actually a string quartet that was on stage the entire time while the action was going on. Yeah, and it was amazing and wonderful. So the reason that we're talking about her today <laughs> is that it was just announced in the Times that the Met has a slew of commissions coming up in... Uh, in the coming years. Um, one of them is Matt O'Coin, who we didn't get a chance to talk about, um, is writing an operatic version of Sarah Rule's play Eurydice, which is very exciting. They've also commissioned Missy Mazzoli uh, to write an operatic version of the novel Lincoln and the Bardo, and Janine Tesori to write an operatic adaptation of a one-woman play by George Brandt called Grounded that was at the public a number of years ago. Um, it's the story of a fighter pilot who becomes pregnant, and so she is switched to the drone program. <clears throat> so it should be pretty intense, and this is very exciting um, because uh, this is the first commissioning project the Met has done with women. Um, the last opera that they did that was composed by a woman was Kaya Sariahos, and before that it was an opera called Der Vault by Ethel Smythe that was premiered over 100 years ago. So this is very, very um, <laughs> exciting. <laughs> And I believe that L'Amour de Lawin by Sariaho was not commissioned by the <coughs> It was not, but it was. So it was performed, performed at the Met. So this right. is their first. And uh, Der Vault was also not commissioned. So this is the first time in history that the Met has commissioned right. female composers. And Janine Tesori has an opera that is being um, performed at Glimmerglass next year called Blue. And it's about a family in Harlem whose son is killed due to police violence and the repercussions in the community as to that. And what we're going to end with today, because I feel like we've talked about some extremely heavy subject matter in the course of this class, is we are going to watch an excerpt from Tesori's musical Thoroughly Modern Millie, set in the 1920s. And I thought it'd be good to end on something nice and light and happy and to show the different ways in which she writes for a particular story. I hope everybody likes flashy costumes and tap dancing, because here we go. Sincere trust, Jimmy, leave me alone. Personal matter. Not on company time! I didn't ask him to call. I don't want him to call. I never want to see Jimmy Smith again. Good. Forget the boys, Dale Mount. Get yourself a canary. No canary in a cage for me. This canary's ready to fly free. That a man I once adored He's nothing but an albatross No great loss, double crosser Forget about the boys, pull the plug Ain't he the one who pulled the rug? He's lower than an alley cat Dirty rat, and I flatter Forget about the boy Forget about the boy You can blow the blues a kiss goodbye And put the sun back in the sky 
That was lecturers Naomi Baratera and Elspeth Davis, guiding us through the second part of a survey on 21st century operas that are at the forefront of today's musical landscape. To keep up to date on all things opera, please follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild, the Metropolitan Opera, and Opera News on your favorite social media platforms. I'm Stuart Holt, and thanks for listening.